You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho. Okay, we go inside the huddle to catch up with director, librettist Amy Stebbins and composer Hauke Berheide, who haven't been on the OBS since the before times, by the way, to find out how they used the pandemic as inspiration for new opera forms auf Deutschland. Plus, in the two-minute drill, the Grammy noms are in, and continuing with the decline of opera recordings, our category is the Video Awards. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow. On Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. And of course, send us a voice memo or email us your opera hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Oliver, how was your Thanksgiving feast? Well, we're recording on the Monday after Thanksgiving, and nobody is back to work yet, including Weston <laughs> Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Matt Cummings. Actually, they all have separate conflicts. Uh, and um, Weston, actually, we lost due to bad internet. I guess his internet provider is still on break. <laughs> uh, but I have not had a day off this entire weekend. I worked all day yesterday. Uh, I worked all day today. Yeah. I worked half the day on Saturday. And I actually had to go in on Thursday as well. So um, it's not been uh, super relaxing, as you can tell by my voice. I'm very wound up today. <laughs> you are not going to want to hear what I did over Thanksgiving uh, then. So get this. The Wednesday before Thanksgiving, Detroit Red Wings are on TV. Thanksgiving Day, the football game with the Detroit Lions. Friday, England-USA FIFA World Cup match with almost 20 million Americans watching it. Saturday, Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan wins, and Sunday, the Bears are on TV. I have watched more sports in the last mm. five days and drunk more beer. I, my kids told me I needed to take a break. Uh, you know, one sports thing, um, the Davis Cup happened over the weekend, and Canada won, and it's the first time, uh, led by uh, Felix Auger-Aliassim and Denis Shapovalov. And I missed all of those matches because, guess what, I was working but you know my heart was with those Canadian boys. Let's get a postcard from Germany. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Director, librettist Amy Stebbins and composer Hauke Berheide are a creative team based in Germany and a favorite pair of mine on the OBS, but they haven't been in our show since before the pandemic. They're currently working on an immersive mixed reality opera for the Staatstheater Augsburg based on the novel Piranesi by Susanna Clark. They join us from New Hampshire, where they're taking part in the McDowell residency. Welcome back to the show, Amy and Hauke. Um, thank you for inviting us and thanks for having us in your wonderful show. And it's great to be back. It is. Hi. So how is the Thornton Wilder suite out there at... Uh, McDowell. McDowell is, first of all, has been here for over a century and had uh, sort of uh, a series of regulars. Thornton Wilder was one of them. And uh, in the studio that I'm in, which is called Phi Beta, uh, I noticed there are these plaques with the names of the people who had previously been there before. And like there's Susie Lauren Parks and uh, who else? Well, in his, and it's like Aaron Copeland, Meredith Monk. Uh, 
um, James Lapine. And then, um, but in mine, there was there was this one name that was on all of the plaques for like 40 years. And her name was Louisa Talma. And it turns out that she was a composer. She studied in France with Nadia Boulanger. And she was the first American woman to have an opera premiered in Europe. Yes. And uh, the, the libretto was written by Thornton Wilder. So you are sucking up all the energy and inspiration from the McDowell residency. Let's go back a little bit, Amy and Hauke. The life in Germany during the pandemic, creating art, specifically in your craft, what, what was that experience like for you? Dark. Um, <laughs> I mean, as it was for probably the majority of people working freelance um, in the United States and all over Europe and many other places of the world. And the funny thing is, I mean, I was actually working on a particular piece which had a text which was called Darkness um, on the text by Lord Byron and which oh, um, started with a line, Morn came and went and came and brought no day. And in a way, I mean, that was my, at least my personal private experience of how it felt. I would agree that it was very dark, but I think coming from the US, I have a slightly different perspective because I also saw what happened to a lot of my friends and colleagues here in the country. I mean, on the one hand, many people like myself ended up staying at home quite a lot because the theaters were closed um, or production productions were happening that had that met certain kinds of criteria that they could be performed in my work just did not fall into that category. On the other hand, we were frequently receiving subsidies from uh, the, not from the federal state, but from the individual. Um, so this language gets confusing from the, the Lenda in Germany, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, what we would call states, so like New Hampshire money, you know, I was right. we were getting NIV. Uh, so it's not German money, but it's the it's public money. And, uh, you know, we did not hunger during the pandemic. And I think that's also important to just mention is that we were depressed and alone and isolated, but we were not, um, we, we did not have the economic rug pulled out from underneath us. And how did the pandemic change your artistic portfolio? <laughs> Well, um, a couple of things. It gave us an opportunity to think about the media we work in, in, in live audience contexts, and also the potential for working in um, more mediated contexts. We had a, a residency during the pandemic at the Academy for Theatre and Digitality in Dortmund, where we worked with VR and also started working more with uh, cinematic uh, technologies rather than li live theater was basically more live opera was what we had done up until that point. And it also led us to think we up until now we've worked almost exclusively within the public theater system in Germany. That's our bread and butter and the orchestras and the pandemic encouraged us to think a little bit about expanding our um, uh, range of employers uh into into other other groups yeah, if i may add some more thing um the strange impression we got is that it was not really the pandemic or the lockdowns themselves which had the most impact on our work directly i mean especially for me as a writer a composer sorry um but the aftermath the things which mm -hmm. are happening now yeah. uh, where um, the budgets are cut down 
So that is actually our crisis is more or less happening now. Yeah. So we there there's been a lot of fallout now it, during the pandemic. There was a lot of public money being pumped into actually our system to keep us afloat. And now that things are, I mean, there's also the energy crisis and the war going on. So nothing has returned to normal, of course. But um, the um, chickens are coming home to roost uh, for what happened that that funding during the pandemic, and we see very much a long uh recession uh obviously there's a recession in, in in germany but uh one specifically that will hit the cultural sector very hard all right so windy city was a film commissioned in 2017 i think it was but it only just came out in october so what was the journey for that the original idea was that the ensemble just wanted to an instrumental piece and we convinced them that it would be even more exciting to have a silent movie with live music with something something which is hardly ever done it's kind of a new format honestly and for that we had to get funding basically i mean that was really the major problem the the commissioning body for this was the dusseldorf symphony hall and they have a resident new music ensemble called no taboo uh, with whom hauke has a long relationship and they asked him to write a 20-minute chamber music piece, and um, specifically about the topic of the sounds of the city. And at the time, we were living in Chicago, right. and um, I was doing a PhD in cinema, in cinema and media studies, and we were kind of talking a lot about generally the relationship between moving image and, and music and sound, uh, and about how horrible it's become, because Hans Zimmer has ruined everything. <laughs> so um, we wanted to we wanted to do a project, and we approached them, and they said, sure, but, um, you know, find your own money. Right. Which in 2017, uh, for an opera director, for a film, just wasn't possible. And through the pandemic, a number of um, funding sources opened up. Uh, I mean, also, to be honest, since 2017, it's a little bit also of the sort of impact of Me Too on the funding uh, situation and public money in Germany is that there's a lot more attention giving to gender equity. Um, I don't know if that specifically played a role in this case, but... I imagine it may have. Uh, and uh, so the money was available and we were able to make the project. You had this idea to make this movie. It was a silent film with live music that in pre-pandemic times would never have been greenlit. And then Me Too and the pandemic come along and actually make the thing happen. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a listen. Project at Oprah Frankfurt, I feel like I've been talking about forever. So remind me about the project, remind me where it started, and remind me when is it actually going to happen. Yeah, this is this this project is really uh, uh, almost in puberty at this point. It's been it's been <laughs> growing for so long. Um, the commission originally came in either seventeen or eighteen uh, from Bernd Löbe, who. Uh, 
based on a previous work that we had done in Munich, which was about mediality, information, and war, and truth, and fake news, wanted us to make a new work about the effects of the digital turn, uh, which is, you know, a super concrete and easy to imagine phenomenon that you can surely just whoop up a chamber opera about. Um, so what we did is we uh, sort of took that prompt and uh, began a research uh, looking specifically at um, sort of what is being referred to as the fifth industrial revolution. So like singularity, AI meets humans, all of us hanging out in the cloud um, and connecting it with questions that were raised in the first industrial revolution. Uh, a lot of our work is interested in kind of long historical uh, frameworks for contemporary problems. Um, so we started doing that research and ultimately came up with a story that sort of focuses on three different groups. One is a group of, of insiders. Uh, those are sort of the people, let's imagine like Googlers or, you know, Silicon Valley types, uh, yeah. people who are um, occupying beautiful spaces, immaterial spaces where labor seems to have disappeared. And on the other hand, you have outsiders where labor is continuing to take place, but this is more sort of a, a, a reactionary labor, um, laboring mass uh, based on the, the Luddites. So, you know, machine people who would destroy uh, the, the weaving machines, the first automated uh, looms. Um, so we're talking actually much more about sort of like a, a violent mob rather than like a, a communist move, although there's ambivalences there. And this, these two groups are brought together by the main protagonist, who is a poor, teenager who's pregnant who tries to kill herself and ends up becoming a massive internet star because this this suicide happens online right so. yeah uh, how can am i right that you are building some instruments yes. for this piece yes i'm doing that and that is actually a very logical consequence out of the desire to produce sounds and usually I have an idea for a sound and then I try to find out how to do that and most of the time it's fine to use the instruments I find in the orchestra but sometimes what I need is not there and especially that piece um, as it is very much about the hidden labor and uh, behind all of that um, we decided that if we want to have sounds which which refer to what would be digital sounds I don't know like the, the beeping cell phone or whatever, um, but I wanted to have the sounds made by hand, kind of. So the thing is, building instruments which produce sounds, which sound as if they were actually digital. And so for this, we're doing things, we're using instruments which are hardly known, like Verophone, which is some, something similar to a, to a glass harp, but better and louder. Mm -hmm. or. Um, tubophones, which are just pipes which you beat on top or um, certain um, bottle instruments or something which uses strings um, attached to a violoncello and um, and this is an this is an instrument that you built and the other one yeah are... and the other instruments kind of exist in some kind some form but I also invented or developed new things which haven't been done like attaching springs to to string instruments and um, using them in the orchestra and and this kind of things yeah 
And I think just one important point for this is that our state, we're doing this in the Bockenheimer Depot, which is uh, sort of famously known for where John Cage's only opera uh, premiered. It's the mm -hmm. sort of experimental stage in Frankfurt. And we have uh, Ensemble Modern is uh, going to be performing uh, part, the part of the orchestra. And right. um, they are, uh, there's no pit in this space and we actually have the stages raked but it goes down and then there's kind of a catwalk in the front and ensemble modern is on by either, either side and their performance of these instruments will be very very fronted uh so the audience will very clearly be able to see the production of these so-called digital sounds through analog means definitely yeah if you're going to build them like we want to we want to see them right that's that's fantastic I led talking about your project in Augsburg in 2024, the Piranese project, I guess we can call mm -hmm. it. I don't know this work at all that it's based on. Um, so what was the genesis of this? Where are you? I know there's a virtual reality element. What do I need to know? This is a piece which is going to happen, but we still don't know what it's going to look like. And we're still kind of figuring out how it actually works, but it is a relatively small setup. It's going to happen in a form industrial space. It's a cooling um, building, right? So that's correct. Yeah, from a, um, a, a defunct gas plant. Yes, the cooler Gebäude. Yeah, it's the cooler Gebäude. Exactly. I, just, I just wanted to say cooler Gebäude. Cooler Gebäude, yeah. right. And it's, an, it's, 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 a, it's 100 years old, but it's, it still has its industrial... I, I mean, you can smell it. And there are the, like the coolers in, in the air, there's a balcony all around. So that is the place. We are going to have some 12 instruments, something like that, and a handful of singers. Um, and the room will be both a stage and a sound installation. Um, and people will be sitting on turning chairs and will experience um, the piece both live and just um, 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 analog in the room, but also through VR goggles. I mean, so we are going to switch between those um, spaces, let me call them spaces or stages. They're kind of a virtual stage and mm -hmm. then an analog stage. Yeah. And the pieces, I mean, we don't know what it's about, but we know already a lot of elements which are going to be in it. And that's a labyrinth and someone in the labyrinth or a palace or something or a cave. And he's imprisoned there. This is why you should never let the composer explain the dramaturgy. This is a terrible idea. So the set, <laughs> the scenic design is an instrument? Okay, so what's, I think first it's important to understand a little bit about the book. Um, Piranesi is a, the second book by Susanna Clark, and it's basically about... Um, um, a man who is exploring a vast, infinite house uh, of chambers, which functions like a labyrinth, but it's this beautiful space with these, you know, antique sculptures, and the first floor is the ocean, and the second floor is the sky, and um, it's very ideal. And over the course of the of the book, this character comes to realize by discovering former journals that he he wrote that it's actually a prison, and that actually he is being uh, kept out of reality and there are people in reality who miss him and it's kind of a metaphor for trauma mm -hmm. in a way uh, and so what we're interested in um, in doing is uh, yeah finding ways of transforming the experience of the space and of course virtual reality for that will be helpful now 
to the set being an installation. We have a very small ensemble for this piece. We have four singers and 10 instrumentalists. And um, the idea is that the physical space will also be the sonic space. So yeah. um, they will, you know, there will be objects that make sound, but also have a function within kind of the, the narrative. Um, and that's about as far as we are with that. I should also mention our designer, Belen Montoliu, with whom we have worked on several occasions and is a genius. And uh, she will surely, she'll, she will surely solve all of our problems. <laughs> this is why I love having you on the show. Is It's like, you just you blow my mind, you two, every time. It's just like, I never would have thought of that in a million years. Before I let you go, get back to the, uh, the Thornton Wilder Suite at McDowell. We, we got to talk a little bit of sports before I let you go. So here we go. Thank Germany God. in the World Cup. They're at the bottom of Group E. They faced a must-win game against Costa Rica on Thursday, and they've scored two goals in the last two matches. Realistically, is there anything other than tears in the future for Die Mannschaft? I mean, Amy's crying in her beer. Amy's already crying. I'm I'm biased because, I mean, I'm I feel kind of sorry for those guys who are now somewhere in the desert and and trying to interest the rest of the world um, in their game, um, but um, yeah, somehow they're kind of crying alone. <laughs> <laughs> we have to admit that one of the wonderful things about McDowell is that you're really um, isolated. isolated, which means we have, I mean, especially as we have only brought our German phones, we only have, have good data if we go to the Zoom room where we are now. We are in the Zoom room. <laughs> so, my, my, By the way, which has a bed in it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, yeah. So, so, so there is hardly... A way to really get the vibe of, of um, um, a World Cup going on. It feels like I see I feel flying squirrels and a bobcat going and deer. On. We and have deer. we're in like a Disney forest basically here. So there there are no you know there's no football. Uh, director, I, librettist Amy Stebbins and composer Hauke Berheider, a creative team based in Germany. Favorite pair of mine to have on the show. It is so great to have Stebbins and Bearheida back on the OBS. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Speaking Soundly is your backstage pass to today's biggest stars on the biggest stages from the world of opera, orchestra, and more. Join host and Metropolitan Opera principal trumpet David Krauss as he sits down with Grammy Award winners Joyce DiDonato, Anthony Roth Costanzo, Isabel Leonard, Terrence Blanchard, Wynton Marsalis, Emmanuel Axe, and other superstars as they speak about their lives and creative process. It's quite a roster. Hear how Isabel Leonard gets into character, how Joyce DiDonato developed her voice, and how an accidental trip to Carnegie Hall ignited Emmanuel Axe's fantasy to perform on that very stage. Speaking soundly gives audiences new perspectives and never-before-heard stories from renowned musicians, conductors, composers, and singers. Catch the latest episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Instagram at Speaking S-N-D-L-Y, at Speaking Sindly. And for more info about the podcast, check out ArtfulNarrativesMedia.com.
All right. Little fantasy football update. Oh. Football stops for nobody. Tobias uh-huh. Wright. He said, now, before Thanksgiving, Tobias wrote, we dominated this weekend, including the second highest fantasy points ever by a kicker. Victory on Monday as we improved to 8-3 and three and regained sole possession of first place. And then today he just wrote, are you tired of winning yet? I'm not. We did it again. We're on a serious heater this year. I'd like to commend you, George, on an excellent draft. We're now 9-3. and three. I swear to you, Oliver, if we win this fantasy football league, Opera Philadelphia is going to send us the, the prize belt. belt. Yeah, excited. I have a picture with that belt on my uh, Instagram, if you follow me. <laughs> send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Operaboxcore at gmail.com. Get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. The Grammy nominations are out, and Opera Box Score is ready to break them down after the drill. Blaming the funding cuts from Arts Council England, Welsh National Opera will cease performances in Liverpool. General Director Aidan Lang said, quote, We are committed to continue delivering our work, but we'll need to diligently review the impact of rising costs and funding cuts as we move forward. Teatro a la Scala is defending its decision to stage the opera Boris Godunov for its December 7th season opener. Quote, the Ukrainian council wanted us to cancel, said La Scala general manager Dominique Meyer. I understand this attitude, but I cannot agree with it. There is nothing in this production that goes against Ukraine. Several artists have announced their intention to bring legal action against the Salzburg Festival for lack of payment. The festival released a statement denying the allegations that workers were unpaid. The Glyndebourne Festival has announced it will rethink the way certain quote-unquote offensive operas will be performed. Some operas in our archive reflect the society and norms of previous ages, containing historical opinions and social assumptions which may offend audiences today. Where once exoticism and orientalism in the presentation of non-European cultures were acceptable, we recognize through our modern lens that this was wrong then and is wrong now. The Orpheus classical label is back. Only a few hundred recordings on the label have been made available over the last several years, but after a 2021 review of the catalog revealed the owners actually had the rights to over 2,000 recordings, they've decided to begin releasing those under the revitalized label. Boston Baroque has announced that it is proud to add its resource library 5 performing, add to its resource library five performing and critical editions, as well as cadenzas and ornamentation for various works all created by founding music director Martin Perlman, who said these additions to the resource library represent a significant contribution to the early music field. Thank you very much. In trade news, American Opera Project announced that General Director Matt Gray will step down. Gray's been with AOP for nearly 20 years and said, quote, it's finally come time to step away and pursue some of the personal goals that I've delayed in my years of dedication to AOP's mission and artists. Former General Director Charles Jarden will serve as intro. Detroit Opera has announced that Rob Roberto Calbi will become the company's music director starting 
immediately. Colby made his Detroit Opera conducting debut in the 2017-18 season and is only the second music director in the company's history. On the disabled list, Peter Bachawa has canceled a number of concerts over the last couple of weeks due to COVID. We wish him a speedy recovery. Exit stage right. A great. American composer Ned Roram has died at the age of 99. In the opera world, he's best known for his adaptations of Strindberg's Miss Julie and Thornton Wilder's Our Town, which premiered in 2006. Italian tenor Daniele Barioni has died at the age of 92. He sang over 30 roles in his career between 1949 and 1980, including his Met debut in 1956, and where he went on to sing for seven seasons and 54 performances. And on this day, November 28th, very little happened in the <laughs> classical music world. Jean-Baptiste Lully was born in 1632, Anton Rubinstein born in 1829, and in 2015, it was the first performance of Schneekönigin, an opera by Georg Alexander Albrecht. And that's your two-minute drill. That is the entirety of Pippa's song by Ned Roram, sung by soprano Laura Aiken with pianist Donald Saltzen. We knew that Ned Roram would eventually die, but it still comes as a shock uh, for us singers. He's one of the first American composers that we're exposed to when we are studying song. I don't know that much about his operas, but uh, I did read some of his personal diaries and boy were they dishy when i was mm. a young musician trying to excited. trying to find some identity uh relation uh relate uh, re somebody to relate to via identity and uh yeah even in his 30s he was still fooling around like we do when we're in our 20s there, so there he was very exciting 99 <laughs> i you know i remember when his opera version of Thornton Wilder's Our Town came out in 2006. It was premiered at Indiana University. And I don't know if you could say it's entered the canon yet. My mm. guess is that it probably will be. You could you could debate that point. Um, it's 
wonderfully split over many different roles. The music is great. Obviously, the story is compelling. Hilariously, Amy and Hauka and I were just talking about Thornton Wilder's Our Town earlier hmm. on in this very show. Hmm. So the Grammy noms, let's go over them really quickly. Uh, starting with the uh, best opera recording, we have Matthew O'Coin, friend of the show, Eurydice, uh, mm-hmm. From the Metropolitan Opera production, there is not a uh, you know audio only recording. This is video. Uh, Terrence Blanchard's "Fire Shut Up and My Bone" also from the Metropolitan Opera music. Uh, I mean, conducted by Yannick Nietzsche Seguin and mm-hmm. with a mostly black cast. I think it's an all black cast actually. Um, so two performances that are from the HD broadcast. Uh, very hard uh, if you're a standard opera consumer um, who buys CDs. And I know they are still out there uh, yeah. to get your hands on that. And then the third opera is uh, Anthony Davis's uh, Life and Times of Malcolm X from Boston Modern Opera Project. Huh. Um, so in the best vocal solo category, we have Joyce DiDonato's environmentally themed project called Eden. Right. Uh, with Il Pomodoro, conducted by Maxim Emelianichev, I Stan. Uh, Sasha Cook, mezzo-soprano, commissioned yes. a bunch a bunch of composers to write songs for her album, How Do I Find You, uh, with pianist Kirill Kuzmin. We have Sean O'Pebolo's uh, art song spirituals uh, in the collection Lord How Come Here, with friend of the show Will Liverman and Janae Bridges, with pianist Paul Sanchez. We have friend of the show. Oh, is he friend of the show? I think he's a friend of Oliver Camacho. Uh, Nicholas Pond's <laughs> album with um, The Knights and Brooklyn Rider and guest countertenor Reginald Mobley. Mm-hmm. Uh, songs by uh, Nico Mooley. And uh, Renee Fleming and Yannick Nazes again. Another uh, nature-themed project called Voice of Nature, The Anthropocene. Uh, so Joyce Dino has so many Grammys already. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm hoping that um, Sean O'Pebble will pull out this one because Will Liverman was robbed last year. Let's, mm-hmm. let's face it. Uh, and what did Weston say about the, uh, he has a comment about the opera category. Once again, two thirds of the noms are for video releases, not audio. Uh, Weston would like to advocate for a separate category for audio only. If pop music can have a separate category for music videos, why can't classical music have a separate category for film performances? It would allow more recordings to be considered, add a bit of incentive to produce to produce traditional audio-only recordings, dare I hope for studio recordings even, uh, and keep the Met from hogging all the attention. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think maybe we will see some sort of a, ch- a change like that. It could take years, of course, but if classical music has opened up into digital filmed media because of the pandemic, again, something that Amy and Hauke and I talked about just minutes ago on the show, could you have a camera opera category? Or would that have to belong to the Music Video Awards, which happen at some other point in the year? Hmm. Shout out to um, friend of, friends of the show, Eileen Perez, Michelle DeYoung, and Matthew Polanzani, who were part of the Met Remembers 9-11 Verdi Requiem, which is nominated for Best Choral Performance. And you'll remember that we talked about that performance right after it was... Um, aired on PBS and we were all very moved by it. So uh, I would not be mad if the Met took that category. So we have uh, other things to talk about briefly. Um, I was going to ask you, 
first yeah. about the um the Boston Baroque and its resource library. So yeah. you you know that I know nothing about Baroque music. I I'm the guy yeah. who can't name five operas by handle. I don't think I still can. But like how how, <laughs> you have how time big to of figure a, out the fifth one? <laughs> how big of a deal is this to have this resource library all of a sudden kind of open up um, well, led by Martin Perlman? Yeah, I mean Boston Baroque has been a leader in North America for um, historically informed performance. Uh, I haven't seen which uh, performing editions they are contributing to the library, mm-hmm. but I think it's always good to uh, continue to create editions that uh, everybody can use and not just the nerds who like take the manuscripts and, you know, put them into their finale and give make performing editions for their friends. Um, there are other organizations that are doing this work, and I think we're woefully behind. Um the Centre de Musique uh, Baroque Versailles seems to be putting out a new edition like every month of something. Uh, so, yeah, it's good that we have an American uh, organization. I think Yale also publishes uh, performing editions. Um, but, yeah, not enough yet. So more of this, please. Uh, as far as the cadences and ornamentations for various works go, um, that's great. I think it's important to you know, get a snapshot of what we think about cadenzas and ornaments in 2022. Uh, I still think it's best to learn personally for individual artists to learn the history of uh, ornamentation and to uh, figure out how to do it for themselves. There's no point in giving it away for free. <laughs> we, us early music people need something to hang on to so that we get hired for our skill. <laughs> Um, so other things we'd like to talk about, um, we talked about Ned Rorum. We should probably do a, um, you know, uh, Hall of Fame on Ned Rorum because, I mean, he was Ned Rorum. Uh, but, you know, not so much opera out there for us to talk about. We could, I could definitely talk about his songs and his other works. Yeah. Uh, the Arts Council of England continues to uh, deliver collateral damage. <laughs> I mean, we were, we were cutting stories. Sorry, so we didn't Liverpool. didn't have to talk yeah. about this as much. <laughs> It's just we are still seeing the rippling effects of this. I'm playing catch up trying to read mm. all the articles, all the yeah. opinion letters that are coming in. Um, various folks outside of England now are starting to sort of get their two cents heard. Mm. We'll have to follow up on the Salzburg story to see what really is going on there and uh, Salzburg not being able to pay their bills. You could, you would think they'd be able to sell something. Don't they have like all the wealth over there at, in Salzburg, like all the music wealth? They can sell Mozart's house and put it up for auction, you know? For for a town that Mozart thought was like a two-bit nothing burg, it's got a lot of clout now, doesn't it? Maybe you mm-hmm. were wrong, Wolfgang. I, finally, Gleinborn is, is making a very clear statement about what it calls these, quote, offensive operas. I, I don't know why it put it in quotation marks, because they are. And I think they deserve credit, perhaps, not a pat on the back, but they say, quote, we recognize through our modern lens that this was wrong then and is wrong now. It's going to be interesting to see how that really trickles down into its programming. This is clearly the work of, you know, or the results of the work that has been done post-2020. And in a way, um, you know, contrast to companies like Arena de Verona, who are doubling oh, down yeah, yeah, <laughs> on their yeah, practices yeah, so yeah, exactly. so good on you Glyndebourne, even though you probably you were defunded by the 
Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, we lost all our money, so we can't do Turandot or the Mikado anymore. Mm. But uh, presumably, these are the sorts of titles they're talking about, right? Abduction from the Seraglio as well, I think you could put in there. I don't think they're saying they're going to stop doing it. I think they're going to try to find a way to contextualize it for contemporary audiences. I don't think well, they're dumping these operas. Well, they, they talk about their archive. So maybe this means that what they need to do is is do new productions of these pieces. Yeah, um, exactly. And we'll, we'll see how that how that trickles down. Do less racist productions. <laughs> uh, and finally, the Orpheus label. I have some old Orpheus recordings, and uh, I'd be curious to see which what's going to come out again. Because yes, they recorded a lot of great singing that you cannot find anywhere right now. So it'd be nice to have some of those back in circulation, even though, you know, let's be real, who's going to buy them? We're just going to download them. So <laughs> let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call coming at you. Weston's bad call, obvious, his internet. Oliver, you want to go first? I can mm. go first. Bad call, Mother Nature, for a landslide in Ischia, which forced the cancellation of the Prima of Don Carlo, yeah. which was starring friends of the show Eileen Perez and Matthew Polanzani. Uh, earlier in the day, Matthew Polanzani like posted to Instagram, "Can't wait for tonight's premiere." You know that mm. that uh, Instagram post um, became outdated very quickly. You know, I have a good call, bad call. Join the. Uh, Offensive linemen of the Philadelphia Eagles have gotten together to make a Christmas record, which benefits the Children's Crisis Treatment Center in Philadelphia. Obviously, that's a good thing. A bad thing is, is that it's being done by the Philadelphia Eagles. There, I, there's nothing I can possibly like about any Philadelphia sports franchise at all. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow. On Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo or just email us your hot take, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your thoughts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guests, Amy Stebbins and Hauke Berheide, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you cool your geboida. Mm. We're back with an all-new show next week when we give you a view from the pit in our new segment featuring players and opera orchestras, starting with Metropolitan Opera principal trumpet David Krauss. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more cadenzas in your library. Join us. <laughs>